Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. A good friend of mine, Mark Rosenblatt, a theatre maker based in London, recently made a short film, Ganeth. Ganeth is a domestic drama set in the 1960s that tells the story of a little girl spooked by a dark tell from her mother's experiences in Nazi Germany who starts to believe her adored cleaner is a thief. It's an exquisitely observed film, focusing on some minute details that speak volumes. Over lockdowns this year, Mark and I have gone for periodic, socially distant walks with his toddler. His film, and the wider conversations we've had on the complicated impact of trauma on the next generation, inspired this podcast. It led to a series of fantastic conversations with artists, academics and psychologists on the nature of trauma and the role that art can play in healing it. But first... Here's Mark explaining what inspired his film. I'd always been very aware or growing up of mis- people who weren't around in the family. My family survived, uh, my mum's my side survived Nazi Germany. My grandmother was born in Frankfurt, as was my grandfather. And my grandmother spent the war on the run and in hiding and lost many of her her immediate family survived but many of her kind of wider family were murdered and so growing up I was just very aware that you know we looked at family photographs and there was cousins that would should have been around but weren't and people that there were just lots of scars and 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 sort of unspoken tragedies um in this very sort of perfectly nice life that everyone was living in London um and I guess sort of there was baggage there were sadnesses and unspoken losses and I remember for instance my auntie Itza I remember one time as a kid watching her pouring some tea at my parents house um whilst we were having gathered having some kind of tea party and she rolled up her sleeves and there was her Auschwitz tattoo and so this sort of strange disconnect between um nice London middle-class London life and this sudden sort of vista opening up of of sort of trauma and, you know, an unthinkable. And I knew subsequently I found out that Itza had been in Auschwitz and that she, in fact, we found a, a big photograph that was discovered of Mengele walking through Auschwitz doing one of his selections and someone had Point had found Itza as a child in the crowd, be you know avoiding selection. So these kinds of um, almost like cognitive dissonance. These just like whoa, we're having a tea party, and this woman was there. Um, was ve- I was just very aware of it growing up. Um, my mum told me this story about my grandmother who um, had you know in many ways had a lovely life but you know and she was a very jolly wonderful person but she also carried a sadness in her and a depressive streak I think and and a loss of confidence because she had been a teenager in the war and uh, sorry a child and then like 14 maybe 15 at the end of the war she lost her entire education she'd never been educated I mean as as just one casualty for her of the experience of the holocaust so she never really um, had the confidence or the trust of the world around her that people had taken that from her and so she's just on a very very simple level my mum told me the story when she was little she remembered 
that my grandmother used to instinctively, when she bought something nice, would like try and hide the shopping from the cleaner. And when my mum asked her why, she said, if they don't know what you've got, they can't take it from you. Um, and this isn't to say that my grandmother was sort of, you know, paranoid about everything and didn't trust anyone, but she, there was a sort of just a deep, irrational trust. I mean, she lived in a nice house. Like, she didn't need to hide, you know, hiding the, the nice shopping wasn't going to kind of persuade a cleaner that there was nothing to take if they were so inclined, um, which they weren't. But so she, and she used to sort of cross the roads to avoid policemen in uniform always. She very, never trusted even taking a taxi anywhere. And I just thought it was an interesting starting point for a, a short film, which has to be so compressed as a bit of storytelling. Like what, uh, what would happen if the, the little girl kind of swallowed that story so much that she acted on it, that she went from being, um, that she, that she became very mistrustful herself of, of the cleaner and what would happen if she loved the cleaner and that's really what my film's about it, it's about um a, a little girl who loves her cleaner in 1960s london little jewish girl and um and how a moment like that a, a mother a survivor telling her daughter to hide the shopping um turns transforms the friendship into something that is very um, mistrustful and destructive. Why can't people see the bags? You know, when I was little, in Frankfurt? Yes. And the people who hurt us? Yes. Well, one soldier, a gunner, a, a, a thief, came to our home and he took what we had. But if he didn't know what we had, he couldn't take it. Is the gunner coming here? No, 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 no. Please, Schaeffler, go play. Not now. Mummy's tired, okay? Please. That was a tiny clip from Gunner. We'll put a link to the trailer in our show notes. I was extremely moved by Mark's beautiful film and the family stories, silences and memories that had inspired him. Our conversation led me to reach out to a few other friends and colleagues who were also making work that explores or is in dialogue in some way with the legacy of trauma in their families. I wanted to hear about their work and what inspired them. I spoke to Silvina de Megatician, a Berlin-based artist from Argentina, whose family is originally Armenian. Silvina's grandparents fled the Ottoman Empire in 1917, escaping the Armenian Genocide. Her work is cross-disciplinary, stunning, and rooted in her complex identity and family history. My grandparents, they were refugees. Um, the first term, the, most of the Armenian refugees from the Ottoman Empire uh, ended up in um, Syria and Lebanon. You had the, the refugee camps and... Um, and uh, a lot of them uh, also um, uh, uh, find refuge in France and others in the U.S. But my family is spread over the world. But they, they, my grandparents, uh, first they were uh, in the orphanage um, in Syria and Lebanon. 
and then uh, part of them were also in, in Paris and then they went to Argentina. I grew up with my grandmother. She was in the desert and she survived the, uh, from my father's side, uh, Agavni. She talked a little bit, uh, but um, in general, I mean, it was clear genocide happened. Um, a lot of suffering happened, and but they would not go into details. And my grandmother, yes, I mean, sometimes um, I would uh, sleep in her room with my uh, sister and she would cry or we have um, the image of her father that um, he got cut off the head. So it was a kind of very um, strange uh, for me, you know, as an Argentinian little girl to see this this man with this heart, it was the face, you know, and uh, and we heard uh, like some things from her. I mean, there I was in this environment where it was clear uh, we were the victims of a genocide. I was in this Armenian school and uh, in history we would learn <laughs> um, what uh, the Ottoman Empire and uh, the... Uh, Turkish did to us and what we lost. It was a, a theme that yeah, was present. When I came to Germany, it's the moment where I, I got a kind of distance and I began to put questions. And then, but my grandmother, she was already uh, very, very old and um, she couldn't answer those questions. So I I uh, got a lot of answers from the documents. I got, um, um, it was 20 years ago, I think, or something like that. Um, I, I got uh, the, the documents of them. My, my, my uncle, he was putting everything out because my grandma was in a, in a house, you know, for, for elderly people and all the, the um, uh, belongings of my grandma and then he came with this uh, suitcase old suitcase and told me ah, I, I, I think you are interested in the past if you like you can have this suitcase so I opened the suitcase and I found a lot of photographs and documents refugee documents from my grandparents and out of those let's say uh, facts <laughs> Uh, written on paper, then I began to recreate the whole uh, story and put more questions and so on and so on. Yeah. It's a case of third generation, the grandchildren, they have another, uh, uh, yes, I, I was saying another distance and they can um, ask those questions. Um, the first generation, they were uh, busy with survival and trying to set up a, a food in, in, in Argentina. And my parents, the first, uh, second generation, they were also trying to integrate. And I mean, it's, um, yeah, all, sometimes the work of the grandchildren. So when I came with all those questions, they, no, they were very open. I also spoke to Chigozi Obioma. Chigozi is a twice Booker Prize nominated author, originally from Nigeria and now based in the US. Chigozi is currently writing a novel about the Biafran War, 
a civil war in Nigeria fought from 1967 to 1970 between the government and the secessionist state of Biafra. He explained what had inspired his novel. It's it's up to my grandfather from my uh, dad's side fought in the war, even though he was he was a bit past his youth. He was almost 50. So he, I mean, my dad says that he died of, of uh, prostrate uh, problems <laughs> exacerbated by the war, but, you know, he wasn't necessarily wounded, but nobody knows. But anyway, the, the fact is that he died during the war uh, at the very middle of it in 68. <laughs> so, not not knowing him, not getting to meet him, uh, is is something that I often think about a lot. People don't like to talk about it. Generally, I mean, people have been write, starting to write something like uh, a few years ago. There was a novel uh, that was written about the wartime situation. So I make a distinction uh, between wartime novels and and war novels. Wartime novels just, uh, I mean, they, they are obviously impactful, but they, they are concerned more about the situation of the civilians caught in the throes of, of, of the violence. But what war novels actually are, you're with the, uh, the fighters in the trenches and you know, you're witnessing the brutalities and all that. So that, that's what I'm writing. I feel like that hasn't been written really. So one of my motivations is to uh, actually reenact and create a kind of a document in fictional form of that war because it was uh, a a war of, 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 of high significance if you think about the scale of it. So it is said that uh, more small weapons by that I mean rifles, grenades, and you know, all of these small arms were used in that civil war than the Second World War combined. This wow. is a Second World wow. War where you had like a group of nations, you know, like industrial uh, nations, like uh, you know, powers like the U.S., Germany, and whatnot, and more small weapons were used in the in the Biafra War than that one. So that's the scale of, of, of destruction that you had there. So that's one motivation. But also, uh, I just, uh, I found out uh, while visiting Nigeria uh, a few years ago in, in 2018, uh, while researching uh, An Orchestra of Minorities, my, my second novel, which came out last year. And there was this man who I've known for like a decade or more, He's been a family friend. He was our family tailor for a long time. And he always, he, you know, he has this wound, like he it deformed. Uh, his right hand was somewhat deformed. It was carved in a particular way. And I was just talking with him about growing up in, in you know, back in the village in the 50s. And what was it like? Was he involved with the, uh, traditional religion of that place, you know, and while talking, I was just like, just out of, uh, 
you know, I just asked him, what happened to your hand, if you don't mind me asking? Was it a wound from your childhood? And he said, oh, no, this was a, a, a bullet wound from fighting uh, in, the, in the Civil War. And I was like, my goodness, you fought in the Civil War. He said, yes, that he did. And, you know, I started talking with him over a number of days. And at some point, the man was like, do you know that you are the first person to whom I've shared this story in 50 years yeah. or thereabouts? I mean, uh, no, not 50 years, uh, 70, uh, 1972. Now, actually, yes, 50 years, you know. So the war ended in, seven, uh, in 1970. And he fought basically throughout. He fought for uh, two years and a half, you know. He fought in some of the most, uh, the, the hottest parts of the war, you know. And, and he, nobody, he never shared this with anybody. Nobody even asked him. My dad did not even know. My dad was shocked. His friend of how many years was a war veteran and he didn't know. <laughs> so from then, uh, I, I, I asked my dad, I said, okay, now you have to interview all the friends you've ever had. And he would discover that two other people, you know, one of his bosses also was a veteran and he never knew all these years, you know. So, so that's, I mean, obviously they saw things that they just didn't feel was important or, or uh, to share or they just felt like it would, they, they didn't want to scare people or, you know, they didn't want to tell stories that would disturb the minds of the civilians. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Cause I asked him, why, why did you never talk about this? And he doesn't, he doesn't have an answer. It was, it was uh, just uh, a kind of uh, bestiality and human brutality at a scale that uh, it's very difficult for me as uh, as they say, millennial, uh, someone who is a person of the modern age to even think about what these guys were thinking when they were doing all this. You know, I mean, obviously the, the Biafrans, all of them whom I found, with the exception of none, believed they were fighting a war of survival. They had no choice. So this was how they saw it. And uh, on the Nigerian side, they were fighting a war of national unity. They wanted to make sure that Nigeria was won. So, you know, both sides have uh, a kind of rational uh, uh, reason for, for the war. But uh, it's, it's just, so it's, it's, been, it's been difficult. But, um, you know, uh, I feel like it's a story that needs to be told. And it, the novel, I think, uh, I really cannot wait to finish it. Maya Milatovic-Ovadia is another inspiring artist whom I spoke to as part of the research for this podcast. Originally from former Yugoslavia, Maya has directed over 30 productions for theatres across Serbia, Montenegro, Bosnia and Slovenia, and is based in London. Every summer, with the exception of this year's Lost Summer, she travels to Bosnia, a place still scarred by the Yugoslav War in the 90s, to develop a theatre show with young people. 
through my work in Bosnia, uh, where I'm not from Bosnia. Uh, but for the last 10 years, I work in, in Priedor area with uh, young people with second generation that grew up with the, with the, with the, with the war. And actually, the war is a, such a strong part of their everyday life, not only through um, collective memory, through history narratives, they, which are now opposed, uh, but also with because Bosnia has very peculiar now uh, political system because it's international protectorate, but it's not. So, so it's complex. What, how, how do you see it in the work that you're doing today? How do you see that the kind of the legacy of the war continuing to play out in the arts? So, for example, in Bosnia, when you go there, the, uh, especially when you go into uh, an area where I work, it's Priedor municipality. So it's part of Republika Srpska. And uh, it's part also where, where uh, there were concentration camps and when mass killings happen, like, you know, Omarska and Ternopolje and uh, uh, Keratin, all those uh, uh, concentration camps were, were formed there. Uh, so today, the kids or young people uh, who grew up, they go to, especially in rural areas, in uh, ethnically segregated schools, because the villages are ethnically segregated, and they are uh, taught completely different histories through education. Also, the family stories are usually one-sided narratives. And then there is this whole issue on a political level, on state level, where the the state doesn't want to recognize crimes happening, uh, the crimes that happened. They do not want to allow memorializations. And at the moment, there is this movement called Dan Belich Traka, which is a, a white ribbon, day of a white ribbon, where all, with that moment, what is important is that all ethnicities are supporting it. It's an initiative for a monument, a memorial to be erected for 120 killed kids in the last war, but officials are not allowing them because then difficult questions will be raised. This past is still present because reconciliation never happened properly. And these kind of narratives, those, those uh, contrasting narratives never met. So they coexist uh, together, but there is no agreement. Uh, so, so you have people who completely deny what happened and then people saying, no, but it did happen. So the kids who are growing up there, they are facing really uh, bleak economic picture. They are facing desegregation, which is normal, you know, that became normality to, to have ethnically segregated uh, life. And they are facing art, which is depends from which side it's coming. It's again, uh, you know, films or books or even uh, uh, history. It's very uh, you can pick up one-sided point of view. So what what I'm doing there, we come, I come and I was like, okay, let's play. And we start with one word and then we devise a whole theater piece uh, around that one word. And then uh, they can, so they have opportunity first to tell their own stories or their own views. So, so I'm not coming with already written text that, so I'm not imposing someone else's opinion about stuff. So. We start from word and then we devise and we tell all these kind of stories that these young people want to tell. And that's the place where they meet because they are from segregated communities. So first they meet and they start developing their own narratives and understanding of narratives that they came with. This collective memory is questioned because they start uh, just having fun 
and actually uh, building meaningful relationships. But then also when the plays perform, we perform the play in theater, in Predor theater for the wider audience. And then we tour it um, uh, to Banyaluka and Mostar or, or small communities. What then happened is that they communicate that with the wider audience, which is also their parents, their families who are on opposing sides. They sit together in a theater. They listen this kind of different kind of story that their kids uh, want to. I'm saying kids, they are all between 16 and 21 year old. So they are really young people. Um, so so that's what uh, what the projects are about. And then all these kind of historical memories came up. Finally, I chatted to the poet and writer Stephen Watts about his friend W.G. Sibbald. The late Sibbald is a highly acclaimed writer known particularly for his novels The Emigrants, Rings of Saturn and Austerlitz. Sibbald's novels are steeped in memory. Many of his characters are people haunted by horrific experiences of the past. Max Sibbald, W. W.G. Sebald was uh, born in 1944 in the very south of Germany, very close to the um, Austrian border, close to the Swiss border also. And I think he always felt a bit of an outsider and on the, on the border person, a uh, crossing borders person. The fact that he was born in 1944 seems to me to be really essential to understand all of his later life and particularly his, uh, his his writing life because it meant that he was born during that war period, during that period also of the Holocaust, but he was not old enough to have understood anything or to have known anything of that. There was big conflict, I think, with his father who had been a soldier and whose um, uh, activities and role during the Second World War are quite unclear, murky, unspoken. I think all of that led to Sebald choosing quite strongly to leave Germany um, by the early or mid-60s. And eventually he came to Manchester to follow postgraduate work in German and European studies at Manchester University and subsequently went to University of East Anglia in Norwich. As a writer of uh, non-academic work, although he was always writing poetry, although he was probably planning and maybe even wrote some manuscript novels uh, or a novel in the 70s, he really didn't start considering himself as a writer until after some um, very difficult experiences in the, in the early 80s. And his first published work, which was a long narrative poem, Nach der Natur, was, I think, published in 1988 in German. And considering that he died in 2001, which was only 13 years later, uh, he managed to write an astonishing amount um, in those last, let's say, 15 years of his life. We physically met in 1990 when I went up to UEA, to the British Centre for Literary Translation, uh, which, of course, he had set up. Um, that was one of his great initiatives, um, to set that up with Arts, uh, Arts Council England funding. Max also liked outsiders. He appreciated outsiders. And I think he perceived in me an outsider in the world of writers and the world of poetry. And we also had a love of translation, a love of the sense that literature was 
beyond your own language. Um, you know, certainly I've always felt that however much wonderful writing there is in English, there must be very, very much more wonderful writing in all the other languages of the world. And I've, I've always stretched out to hear and embrace those other literatures. And I think that's why Max set up the British Centre for Literary Translation, because he had a, a sort of similar feeling. Um, and certainly I also uh, felt close to his sense of memory and history and language and landscape, all of which were very important to my writing before I met Max and all of which were clearly essential to Max's writing. I've been entirely immersed in conversations with these extraordinary artists about their practice, all exploring memory, family stories, trauma and silences. Along the way, I was introduced to the work of Dr Marianne Hirsch, who's the William Peterfield Trent Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and Professor in the Institute for Research on Women, Gender and Sexuality. Marianne and I spoke on Election Day in America. She was quite delighted to have some distraction from the political news cycle. Marianne's developed a term, post-memory. She explained the expression and where it came from. It happened sometime in the 1980s, and I would say it was both a personal insight coming out of my own personal experience as a daughter of survivors of the Holocaust, uh, whose parents talked a lot about their experiences during the war. And it was an experience, a cultural experience, more broadly cultural generational experience because of a conjunction of books and films that came out in the mid 1980s that somehow brought brought me back to my own personal experience and allowed me to see it in a very different way. Um, so as I said, my parents talked about the war all the time. The word survivor was not yet uh, available in the 1950s and 60s when I was growing up, uh, but it was a constant presence in my life. And there came a moment in the mid-1980s when I realized that somehow I had more access to the stories and the spaces and the images that they were evoking in their narratives than to memories in my own childhood. I grew up in Romania as a child. I left there when I was 12. Uh, so my own childhood was quite distant when I eventually came to the United States. And I seemed to have less fewer memories or more less vivid memories of my own childhood than of the scenes that they evoked throughout my childhood and youth of the city where they grew up and where they survived the war and from which they eventually fled um, the Soviet Union. Um, so in the 1980s, I first read Art Spiegelman's book, Mouse, his graphic memoir of his father's survival and parents' survival in the Holocaust. Um, Claude Lanzmann's Shoah came out right around the very same time. And it's a film that um, even though I had avoided all images of Holocaust violence, um, as much as I could, when I knew what it was about, I would never go and see it because it was just too painful and too powerful. Um, I went to see Lansman's film. I sat at the, you know, right by the door so I could flee. But Lansman's film it was very different because it was mainly voices of survivors who discussed their experiences. And uh, it wasn't graphic imagery. I mean, there's no archival imagery in that film. And I was kind of driven by his experience. He's not second generation, but he's he, he was a very young, he was a child, an adolescent during the war. And it was his 
curiosity that was driving the nine and a half hour film. And somehow I identified with that. I identified with Art Spiegelman's um, relationship to his parents' story and the medium that he had found to, um, to figure that story as a graphic memoir and as an animal fable. And then the third book that was so important to me was Toni Morrison's no- novel, Beloved, which is a multi-generational novel about uh, enslavement in the United States. And it is about the shift in generations, about the mother who committed matricide, um, uh, infanticide, sorry, and who, um, but who gave birth to a child just at the moment of fleeing across the river into freedom. And so it's that daughter was the one I identified with who wanted to know more about the experience of slavery and the plantation, really needed to know, but didn't know because she didn't herself live through it, but she lived through the after effects of it. So I felt like these were in some sense memories, even though memories of experiences that in this Um, subsequent second generation, we had not ourselves lived through. So can you have memories of experiences that you have not yourself had? And I concluded both from, you know, sort of searching my own personal experience, talking to friends and colleagues and members of my generation and reading um, and and looking at artwork and so on, that these uh, fragments, because they are fragments really, um, have, a, um, a, you know, have a great deal of power in evoking um, stories and scenes uh, as though they were memories. So I felt like I needed a term for that. It couldn't be memory because I'm not actually recalling anything um, except conjuring, interpreting, um, um, you know, these are these are fragments of experiences that were passed down to me. So, and, and to these other uh, characters. So I thought of, I coined this idea of post-memory, but post not only in the temporal sense of after, right? But it's sort of like, you know, that we have so many posts, the relationship of modern and postmodern. I mean, it's not exactly that it just comes temporally after, but it somehow marks the difference. It's subsequent in, and, but, um, these memory and post-memory are deeply interconnected in multiple ways. Is it simply a coincidence that they're all artists? I asked Marianne what role she thinks art plays in revealing and contextualising these memories. I understood the after-effects of violence into the next generation, not just through my own experience. I understood them better when I looked to the work of artists who had found a means to figure what I was experiencing. So it really helped me see what was happening to me. Uh, I think probably if I'd been in psychotherapy for that, it might've clarified a lot of things as well. But, and I'm not saying that art is therapeutic, but it is a way of sharpening some of these experiences and questions and and finding a, a register, a language through which to figure them in their complexity. 
So what appealed to me, for example, about Mouse in the graphic memoir is precisely the squares, um, the, the squares and the breaks between them, the gutters between the squares. That, to me, through that, I understood the things that were not there, the forgotten uh, parts, the, the way that memory can be broken into fragments and can be absolutely sharp with uh, with uh, frames around some certain scenes, but then the scenes are not necessarily related in any kind of linear framework. There is something really important about the artistic process or going to art as a way of coping with these intergenerational legacies because um, they take you out of yourself and your own family. And what, uh, you know, my idea of post-memory has evolved because I was very much focused on the family as a site of transmission. And I realized after writing sort of my first couple of articles about this or chapters that the family is intricately part of a larger social fabric. The family is not isolated from public images, public stories, public ideas. And sometimes, and so these um, experiences are shared. Of course, you know, my, you know, the way that parents communicate the past to their children is in the domestic. Um, Art Spiegelman in his very first mouse has the little um, boy mouse sit on his father, you know, father's lap. And it's, it's this transmission as a child that you get sort of from parent to child, almost like a bedtime story of the past. And, you know, it's a figure for the way it suffuses the domestic life of the family. But it's not separate from the public images. You know, there are many, many venues of, these, of this form of transmission that, in which the private and the public intersect. And art is really at that juncture of the very intimate and the public. Mark had mentioned that Ganeth was inspired by a story his mum had told him of her mother. I returned to Mark to ask him more about this. Have you watched it with your mum? I'm sure she's watched it many times. What's, what, how does she respond to it when she sees herself or not herself in I think film? she finds it quite, quite moving and, and, and she feels it's quite powerful. I mean, for some reason, the, the name of... Look, first of all, it isn't, it isn't exactly biographical. It's, no. it's sort of drawn from those stories and it certainly isn't like yeah a, a sort of documentary about a documentary drama it's not a restaging of something that happened but she like her mum my weirdly the the character of the mother who is my mum's mum would the equivalent of my mum's mum has her carries her her maiden name so that I probably <laughs> makes her I don't know why but I just used it when I was writing and I never took it out I never changed it um so I think that probably just connect. It can't not but connect for her. But yeah, I think she finds it quite, quite powerful and quite, quite reson and it quite and it resonates quite strongly for her. Yeah, it must be quite weird to tell your son a story and then he turns it into a film, and then, and that film is sort of a version of your a, sort of a kind of fictionalized version by some degrees of difference, but sort of recognisably the world you came from. It must be quite an odd thing. I mean, it must be just kind of odd to have, like, artists as children, you know, who then sort of tell, you know, you've told them stuff and then they sort of remake it and <laughs> and then you watch, you have to watch it. I don't know what that would be like. It must be sort of strangely intimate, actually, and and... 
kind of but I, I I I think the fact that she hasn't you know I think she's I think she's wants people to see it and 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 I think that says as much as as many words would. Chigozi explained that his dad's friends were also keen to pass on their stories. They are enthusiastic to share now because they they trust me. I mean they they know that uh, the story would get out there. I'm, I'm a writer, you see, uh, but. It, it, the process itself is not very easy for them. That's the sense I get. But they are, I think they're happy to talk about it now. In fact, the, the Taylor guy, uh, uh, Lieutenant Mwafo, he, he, he wanted to talk about it all the time now. You know, he would. Mm. If I, he would call me up. <laughs> I'd be like, do you want more? It was, like, it, it was as if he's been relieved of this great burden that he's carried with him for a long time. And he, he, you know, he, he's very, if I call him down and say, okay, I, I want to ask you a question. How were you feeding? You know, and he knows that I want to ask him a question that would take like five minutes to answer. He would give me 20 minutes because he huh? it's as if he wants to, you know, like just take, get everything out. Uh, I mean, he's, he's old, obviously. I'm sure he's thinking, uh, you know, he has anxiety around uh, the fact that these stories might just die with him. So, so there's also that, you know, uh, geriatric anxiety that is, is, is pushing, uh, is driving uh, the stories. Listening to Mark, Marianne and Chigozi, I was reminded of many conversations that I'd had when Dash was working in the former Soviet Union. Artists regularly talked of family secrets and silences that couldn't be broken. I spoke to the Russian actress and film star Oksana Misina, who is now based in Greece, as she's been increasingly found working in Moscow to be too politically difficult for her. Can I ask you this uh, this thing, this idea that you just said to me about secrets, um, the secrets that are in your family that you know that you don't, that the people don't talk about, but you want to explore them, and that's why you became an actor. Do you think that that is something specific to? growing up in the Soviet Union, you know, where, where you just didn't tell secrets? Absolutely, yes. Because um, uh, because it was uh, sometimes, uh, not sometimes, but it was very dangerous uh, to open some secrets of the history of the families. Uh, because during Soviet period, uh, people who had uh, no, noble uh, relatives, uh, some of them were some of them were um, prisons. Uh, and even in the 60s, uh, when my parents were young, but we were born at this um, period of time, uh, I was born in the 60s, um, their colleagues uh, were picked off from the institutes when somebody discovered their roots, <laughs> their, their nobility. Mm. And so our grand uh, grand um, uh, fathers and mothers they were whispering about some things, uh, or they were so afraid that they decided not to tell anybody. I know that the brother of my grandmother, uh, um, by the way, she my grandmother. Um, the mother of my mother, uh, she was from the nobility, uh, Mironov's family. And 
kill um, her brother was killed in Stalin's uh, prisons. And she only told us his name. His name was George. George. And that's the only thing that we know about him. He disappeared. It was fascinating to hear, or to try to hear, apologies for the poor connection, Oksana talking about the generations of silences and pain. Maya also spoke so powerfully about this in the context of the former Yugoslavia. My husband, he's from Sarajevo, so we have a lot of these kind of conversations, how the war in Yugoslavia happened because we didn't know nationalists and, you know, we grew up with the Yugoslav identity and all that. But actually... It did happen because some trauma from the Second World War were not addressed. And those traumas were, uh, were boiling underneath the surface. So uh, whatever, if you were coming from not partisan narrative, then you had some traumas. And the, 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 war, the Second World War in Yugoslavia, you had kind of three wars in one. Uh, you had anti-fascistic struggle, you have social revolution, and then you had a bit of civil wars all over the place where neighbors were killing neighbors and uh, or denunciating neighbors or stuff like that. And only when I start working in, in rural Bosnia, I realized that, that those narratives are very strong and that those villages were segregated even before. So, uh, and there was this kind of family narrative that, so, so in a way you have three layers. You have official narrative, then you have historic, you know, complexities of historical narratives, and then you have this family narrative that no matter what those two are, this one is, um, is boiling. So I think that if we manage just to question or to offer opportunity through art to that some narratives are not so singular, but also that uh, that truth is not so one-sided, that, that there is always complexity. For me, that's um, what art should do. You know, this sense of this, these, these collective, this hidden, this unspoken traumas. Do you feel like you've released some of those in your own family through this process of working with the young people every year on, you know, with their own, you know, exploring it themselves? I mean, like, does that, has that unlocked stuff for you that you didn't realise that was there through in that, in that journey? Yeah, to, uh, I think so. Because there is, um, in my personal family, we have few silences, but those silences I can't, um, because like uh, most of my family is dead, uh, so I can't ask questions. Uh, but I know that uh, that some questions like uh, my... Uh, Grandma, aunt, aunt, grandma. Uh, for example, she uh, she was in Auschwitz and she never talked about that. So there was the silence. We knew that, she, and then that was it. So there was no. Um, she was also, but what stayed with me is that she was a woman. She died nine, uh, in ninety four, uh, uh, but. For her, she was one of the people who was so full of life. She was a journalist after the war and she was always, all the time, somewhere. And she never talked about her trauma, but in my head, I was like, okay, the trauma actually uh, opened up this unconditional love for life in her case. So so that stayed uh, as one trauma. Then the Second World War trauma, 
uh, I'm from partisan family. So my, my uh, both grandparents, uh, grandfathers, uh, as well as uh, grandmothers, uh, one grandmother, they participated in war as partisans. And with my, uh, the, the grandfather who also died in 92, uh, I managed to talk and he was, uh, he's my Slovenian grandfather, and he was quite open with this because I was always intrigued for what you would go and risk your life. Is that, you know, what kind of idea would trigger this, that you will be willing to go and risk your life? Uh, so we talked a lot about that. There is always doubt because you always doubt, is too much questioning helpful or not? Because sometimes too much questioning easily leads to denial, which is not great. Uh, but also, what do you do with that? That's something that uh, uh, that that I have personally uh, a question like, yeah, you open up questions and but what do we do with that? If we are just opening traumas and wounds for sake of it, then is that ethical? We need to open conversation only if we have an idea what to do with those answers and what to do with that trauma that will come out and how we can create hope or better society or something but just to open up trauma and leave people like you know life is tough uh, is something that personally i i found uh, problematic I, 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 I think you're right. I mean, what, what I'm hearing from the way that you've talked about it is that it's opened up confronting these things in your family over long, quiet, gentle periods of time has opened up, opened you up as an artist. And is, you know, it is very much part of your practice now to, to, you know, you're carrying that on through your work. I feel that from listening to you. And that's an extraordinary positive and amazing thing. Um, I, for the young people that you're working with, do you, is there like a, is there a ongoing program of support? I mean, are there other things that happen when you're not there working with them in the summer? You have uh, young people who just want to uh, uh, get more active within their communities so you help them with anything that you can information or application or just being there because we, we are stay we, we are all in contact on face through Facebook anyway so but there is no in place systems first because the charity that I worked with was very small and that's not possible but it bottom line it's it's on a human level so but also what is very valuable is that that group created support for themselves because now those young people from even people from like uh, six years ago or ten years ago they support each other there is no support for people who survived war traumas there is no it's not rich country and also it's not a country who has means to support people with trauma and so do you think um, you started off by saying there's a great denial on a very national level? I mean, you know, ultimately, without the resources and the, and, the, and the ability to support the therapy and the conversation, somehow perhaps it's better to be in denial, you know, because once you start unlocking the Pandora's box, uh, then you need to provide the support systems that enable people to talk about it and open up and have, the, you know, have that help. And it doesn't sound like that, that exists. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
Yeah, no, that's that's the, absolutely. That's why with this ethical question comes, what do you do? So why are you opening the trauma? And what are you going to do with that trauma? Because just to open it for sake of opening it and leaving it there, it's not healthy so yeah but of course i think it's i think it's extremely interesting um to hear you talking about now um maya about how there was all this unspoken stuff left over from the second world war because of course with that was never dealt with that was never discussed and this is not this is the same thing again you know this is just another layer of unspoken stuff that will just continue to feed until we have the next disaster they're completely quiet about things then the trauma will you know uh, boil from inside and it will uh, you will sh- you you will um, pass on fear uh, distrust towards other and whoever other is and that's coming back to to this this narratives is where yugoslav war uh, where this fall of yugoslavia happened because narratives from the second world war when they had chance to be addressed probably not in 1945 but for sure in 1960s when there was a chance for this trauma and and uh, complexity of the second world war to be addressed within yugoslav society didn't happened that's why we could easily have this war in the 90s if those things you know were open up then it wouldn't be so easy to spark again a fear because the fear is something that you know and uh, and the, the revenges from personal uh, family stories uh, because who killed your grandfather and stuff like that back to mark and Ganeth. There's an idea that the Holocaust, the way that the Holocaust is represented in culture is often that it ends at the end of the Second World War at the point of liberation. I, mean, we rarely, I rarely watch films, I've rarely seen films that represent the aftermath of the war. Um, or, you know, this film is set in 1962. And um, and I just wanted. I thought that was an interesting place to go because I hadn't seen the, that kind of experience represented very much. What happened when you tried to rebuild your life, having gone through what you went through, and set up again in a new city, speaking a new language in a new country? How and you were confronted with suddenly re- living with suddenly living with all those you know, in an ordinary, ordinary world and you were carrying all that sadness with you and all that pain, what did you do with it? And in the 60s, um, I'm just going off on one really here, but in the 60s, you know, the, there wasn't therapy and, and, pe- and Jewish people, couples didn't talk to each other about even a, a, a married couple who had both say been to Auschwitz, lived and survived Auschwitz, probably wouldn't talk to each other about their experiences because it was seen as shameful and um, and it hadn't yet been critically it hadn't been validated by society. You know, Schindler's List wasn't going to arrive in the cinemas for many many more years. And 
society as a whole hadn't properly said, yes, this happened to you. Yes, it really happened. And yes, the feelings that you have are valid. And yes, you must talk about them. It, it just it just hadn't happened yet. So I was just interested in a point in time where the trauma's there, but the outlet for it isn't. And what happens when the lid is on it so heavily that it the only the, the main character the, the woman the mother in the film is all we really discover of her is that she sleeps in the afternoon and she's probably medicates and um she doesn't like noise in the house and um, and and she has a an Auschwitz tattoo on her arm and we're you know we obviously hopefully were able to put together a, a, a picture of of her state of mind but yeah, I find it I find it really interesting that I want to kind of, I think that there's an impulse to like represent parts of the recovery process that I have I haven't really seen and actually are quite hard to dramatize because they're so because there's no outlet for them. They're just people living with this baggage not really knowing what or wanting to do anything with it. I return to Silvina, who's been living and making work with her Armenian family's memories for more than 30 years. It's a very rich content for you to explore. You know, extraordinary, your families, your these amazing stories, this world that you can recreate that doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore. It's, I can see why it's very exciting artistically. Do you feel some sense of responsibility to, to do it as well? Mm. Yes, I think yes. Hmm. Yes. Not everybody feels responsibility, but me personally, um, yes, I, I, I grew up with this grandmother, as I said, and um, there, is, there is this message, but also I think in the education, in the school, that uh, don't let that we are forgotten, that our pain is forgotten, that our... Um, life our existence so that this is quite quite strong yes and i don't say uh, i mean i feel it and it's like this it's not let's say a very positive feeling it's um heavy but yeah are there things that you feel still in your family or still in you that you that have some connection to that to that time that in the past yeah, I think um, it's a kind of karma, <laughs> um, but I think it can be transformed. But I am connected also through the pain of loss with them. That I would like to change that. Um, for example, uh, when it comes to my son, I would... I. I t- tried for sure not to have, you know, those um, discourse of don't forget. I would love to, yeah, to change that. Uh, what I, uh, as third generation, give to my fourth generation son. I mean, till now it worked very well. I have to say now is a very special moment because um, after so many years of, uh, let's say, building bridges 
and reconciliation processes that took part uh, on an individual um, level on my person and also I try to to bring this new, let's say, past of communication, of coming together to other persons and other artists and whatever. The the war that is taking place now against uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, where, I mean, if you ask me, I don't have anything to do with Azerbaijan, but I have something to do with Turkey. And Turkey is actively, um, after not being able to recognize the wrong, what their ancestors did, again attacking this small country called Armenia. And this is something like, wow, it's really hard for me. So um, um, so it's stirring up. Is it stirring up a lot of memories for you? Yes, yes. It's like, it's... it's I, I I observe how uh, old wounds are that I thought they are gone it are already come I coming up and and yeah and I see how my son is observing everything and I I hope that is not um, influencing very much his point of view, but it's, it's, it's a hard moment. It's really a hard moment. Sylvina spoke about the current crisis in the Caucasus with real consideration and thoughtfulness. She made a film last month exploring her response. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Marianne and I chatted about these cycles of trauma and how it might be possible to break them. I think that um, the most powerful thing that happened to me in Rwanda was actually uh, a young man um, who had survived the genocide um, by being alive in a mass of corpses. Um, he just was hiding. Um, he had been shot and um, or injured. And, you know, he was part of this workshop. He was a little older than some of the other participants. And he he and I then had a really interesting correspondence because he really wanted to know about post-memory because what he really wanted to know is what was he handing down to his children and how was his trauma going to affect his children and their children. So, right, this is exactly how I responded. I mean, just made me cry um, because this is, you know, the survivors and even the second generation are a hinge generation that is still affecting and you know Spiegelman draw, drew a one page comic about his son and he you know at the end or his children and at the end of it uh, he's the last frame says they are grandchildren of Auschwitz survivors so it's like that's who you're always are you know but then can we break I mean the important thing to to remember now is because we're in such an interconnected world, how can we break out of the cycles of violence? And I think that's another real importance of, of this work. It's not just to relive the trauma or to get our audiences, if we're artists, to relive the trauma and to feel it in this embodied way, but to interrupt the cycles of violence that we keep experiencing. And I think a lot of this artistic work is a search for that. My interest in sort of in, inher- in, in, in inherited trauma I was talking about it before I, I just I get angry whenever I see I think the way the news cycles deal with violence in the world and report on it is very 
um, distorting because we, it, it, you know, it neatly boxes away. You know, you'll see it, you know, you'll, you'll hear a report about uh, an airstrike in, you know, Gaza or in, you know, in 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 Iraq or whatever and um and we're so yeah we're just so in, in we're so in, um immune to these stories almost what we never really talk about is 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 the legacy of the, each and every moment of the each and every one of those stories is going to trigger generations of changed behavior in those families that suffered in those moments and the complexities and confusions of it. And that's what troubles me. And, and, and that's partly why where Gunnif comes from. There are other histories that could be told that they are not just the traumatic histories. They're the histories of courage. They're the histories of the will to survive. They're histories of pleasure and joy at moments of extremity. They're histories of community and of rescue. So, I mean, I think retrieving some of those histories are, is very important as well. And I think that is, um, Ariela Azulay, the scholar Ariela Azulay writes about potential history. And I think there are all these potential moments where things might have gone a different way. I think we need to retrieve that. We need to retrieve moments of resistance, um, stories of resistance, not heroic resistance like the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto necessarily, but small moments of community and of resistance. So I think those things are the things that are going to get us through some of the difficulties of this particular moment. So on the one hand, I think we owe something to the survivors to tell the, to listen to their stories, to tell their stories, to embed them in a larger context. And I think that's a form of repair. Um, you can't restore the before, but you can maybe repair the injuries at least through these gestures. But it's more than that. It's also retrieving um, some of these um responses that could serve as inspiration. Stephen read me something that Sebold wrote in an essay in 1982 where memory and melancholy are an act of resistance. I asked him what he thought Sebold meant by that. Sebold was saying that melancholy and memory are forms of resistance and not just the resistance of the individual psyche, not just what the individual needs, but resistance in a political sense. He says here, in the description of the disaster lies the possibility of overcoming it. I don't think there's a sense of being able to make it not happen again, because I think he was sanguine enough to know that that's not necessarily possible. But what he is saying is that only by understanding, only in a way, also by understanding, in a way by removing the self from experience, by letting the experience speak for its for itself and thus for ourselves via memory often, um, are we able to come to terms with it? I was wondering whether the literary, the translation centre might have been part of his resistance. Do you think? I mean, just just thinking about um, whether the because it was an it's an extraordinary act of generosity and, and commitment to build something, but it also feels quite defiant in a way. I mean, is there something in that kind of creation of something that would help people understand? You know, that would break down some barriers of understanding that was somehow connected to what he was trying to do through his own work and his own writing. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point, very perceptive, you know, of what things meant and mattered to him in his life. And yeah, I, 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 I think it wasn't an act of resistance. It was an act of resistance, I think, maybe to three things. One, to the changing atmosphere in academic life, which, as I said, when he started out in the mid-60s and went to UEA, there was an immense and wonderful freedom that a number of young academics have mentioned was present at the time, you know, feeling that things could really be taught and, and things could be taught freely and without bureaucratic restriction. So I think his attempt to set up BCLT was in one way uh, an act of resistance to the um, strangling of academic freedom that he perceived as happening. I think it was also an act of resistance to the, the fact that British readers and British publishers really, particularly, you know, until fairly recently, were pretty reticent about accepting uh, translated literature. So here was Max Sebald as a German writer and academic um, working in an English university saying he wanted to set up a British Centre for Literary Translation to... Uh, enhance and celebrate and uh, enable more translations to be published in, in, in the UK. And I think it was a third way of resisting uh, in the same way that his writing was a resistance against obliteration, a resistance against lost memory, damaged memory, damaged human beings. Um, you know, I, 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 I think it was a, a very positive and affirming action and I think it was an action a definite action um, to set up the BCLT at that time. Dr Sarah Lack is a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with adults who've experienced trauma. She explained in general terms the response of fight or flight she finds in her patients. I told Sarah about Sebald and my conversation with Stephen. A lot of his work, in some ways, was dealing with his relationship with his dad and his relationship with the history and the legacy of, of growing up in Germany, um, you know, born in the war, dealing with the post, the after effects of the war and the history and the, the, hate, the kind of burden. And um, he, he, Stephen read something that he wrote when he talked about, like, memory and melancholy being a resistance. Um, and we were talking about what he meant. Um, and like using the memory to resist, I suppose, to change. And what was was just really interesting hearing you talk about the fight and flight aspect, because it made me think about um, a lot of the artists that I've been talking to over the last few weeks and how in some ways what their, their practice is a form of resi resistance. I mean, resistance to the memory and perhaps not also perhaps not wanting to continue the cycles of the of the of the of, of what has gone before them so change i suppose enabling change so he he um i was just reflecting to the in the conversation to stephen that sybald one of the things he did was form this amazing like the first ever center of translation and poetry and literature and translation in the uk in the uea it was like radical and exciting and and i was suggesting that might have been some part of his resistance you know this idea of like breaking down borders, language borders in, in being a really essential part of understanding and empathy. And in some ways, that was part of his own resistance to his memories. 
And I and and I it kind of transitions us a little bit into talking a bit more about the role of art in all of this. Like I'm not sure that any of it's conscious, but it is a form of dealing with the trauma. Um, and I think a lot of the artists that I'm working with are that's their that that's their way of her, a, a way of exploring some of these ideas. It's, it's, it's like doing therapy, isn't it? Because you're you're not avoiding the memories, you're not suppressing them, you're not trying to pretend that they never happened and carry on regardless. You're you're delving into them, you're going there, you're facing the the horror or the the sadness or the loss or whatever it was, and turning it into something um, potentially beautiful or at least meaningful to you and your community or your family. So again, that's that, that idea of healing, um, which I think is, is must be, I mean, I'm not an artist, but it must be um, a driver behind um, why, why people do those, those kinds of art pieces. For Maya, her preferred form of resistance is comedy. You think comedy comedy can unlock something that this work can't do? Yeah, absolutely. That's I'm, uh, you know, not scientifically, but I'm absolutely sure <laughs> from uh, from my experience, because that uh, when um, when with the first project when we sent it up a call for participants because this is free call we uh, I. Yeah. I don't work with institutions, so you have to be there. It's whoever wants to come, come. And then, um, and actually the, the people came, the comedy thing was one of the triggers or one of the invites for young people to apply, but also for audience to come. We have really full theater when people are sitting on the stairs. And that's very unusual for, uh, uh, you know, professional theater shows in Priedor. So so that's something that, uh, that is very beneficial, that you bring people in, that you get permissions from the officials because, you know, art and comedy art, it's not uh, political. And also it's beneficial because having fun while you are uh, dissecting society is something that's valuable for relationships and also for this kind of happy ending hope that I think we need to bring. Otherwise, what's the point? And returning to Chigozi. I'm interested um, in the role that, that, that art generally, and obviously in your case, particularly fiction writing, can play in sharing these stories, in unlocking some of the silence and potentially redressing some of the bad. Um, do you do you think that that that's that that the art can do it, and perhaps in a way that you know the history books can't or that nonfiction can't? Yes, uh, I I think so. Fiction and Dios more like we uh, we are still reading uh what's it called now lot of the flies or uh, we are reading uh all quiet on the western front uh these many years later 70 years or so or even more than that uh then many of the memoirs of of even someone like uh general Patton. i mean there's a select few who read those memoirs mm-hmm. but it's not as popular as, as the novel. So, so I feel like the novel has, is for me the most uh, advanced and, and complex art form that there is. And, and so in that, in that way, uh, because of its uh, potential or its capability, so to speak, uh, to reach uh, a, wider, a wider audience and to endure, I think it, 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 it can do 
that kind of intervention. It can, mm-hmm. can create um, an awareness, at least, of what has happened in the past. And it can, in fact, uh, uh, even, even call for healing. Because one of the things that the, these veterans uh, were sad about, which all of them pointed out to me, was that uh, they were neglected in the aftermath of the war. So with all they did, the Taylor guy could not go back to school. He, he went into uh, the war at 18, just when he was finishing high school. So there was this big d- d- disruption in his life that he had to just start doing like, you know, small labor to, to be able to uh, fend for his, you know, family and what was left of them. So, so they want some kind of, at least acknowledgement, if not uh, a tribute of some kind, you know, they, I think there's a wound uh, that they feel, you know, they, they, they have uh, not resentment. I don't think it's resentment, but they, they feel like they, their struggle has not received and sacrifice the kind of uh, attention and, and at least acknowledgement that on a national level that it deserves. And what you're doing by, by the, in the novel is that you're making that particular experience a universal one. So it gains, it gains a more, gets wider recognition. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I, I will dedicate it to the three of them and, and also mm. others who I didn't speak with. Yes. I return to Mark to play him an early version of this podcast and hear his thoughts. More than anything, just affirms the reasons that I make Gunniff are universal that it isn't the the kinds of um, experiences I'm trying to articulate in Gunef don't belong exclusively to the Holocaust. They belong uh, to any group of people that have gone through that kind of persecution and then have not been able to um, exercise those demons in a constructive, um, healthy way that if you put a lid on it, if you're not allowed to talk about it, if society doesn't validate it, then, then it rolls on. And, and, and lots of the other uh, artists that you've interviewed and, 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 and experts that you've interviewed, you know, all of their experiences chime with that. So it was really, it was really, in some ways it was really, I knew that, but I hadn't heard it. So it was really nice not nice to hear that people have gone through that, but not, but but healthy to hear other people from completely different backgrounds and heritages um, discussing how they've had to wrangle with the past and with what their forebears have suffered, um, and actually as a collective of voices. Whilst my story might, you know, possibly my grandma wasn't able to get the kind of therapies or or resolutions um, that perhaps would have been healthy for her in her lifetime. Interesting to hear how other people are, you know, finding healthy outlets for what they've gone through. The one thing that no one said about art in relation to this, trauma is a, it's a chaotic feeling and art is a, is then story is a way of organizing chaos. 
And so to be able to make something and look at it is an incredibly powerful attempt to contain chaotic feelings. Control them. Yeah. And look yeah. at them. Because yeah. the trauma it otherwise, it, it 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 what it does is it, it as well as it it blurs boundaries. Your your sense of yourself and of others is melded. Um, because there's no division that's being created between you and say the people that did this to you. It's mm. they haven't stood stood back and said, We did it and you're separate from us. It's all becomes psychologically blurred. So it becomes important to be able to just step back and sort of contain and organise it. I hope that our podcast has brought some order to the chaos. It's certainly been extraordinary for me to hear these artists acknowledge their wounds and reflect so inspiringly on their family's stories. I was left with a real sense of the power of art to enable healing. We'll put links to as much of the work featured by the artists in our podcast as we can and would love to hear from you of other artists who've inspired and supported you. Please do get in touch with us through our website. Thank you to all my guests, to Mark, Sylvina, Chigozi, Maya, Stephen, Oksana, Sarah and Marianne, and to writer and journalist Peter Jukes, whose conversation I couldn't squeeze into this podcast, but who explained that his mother's background as the daughter of someone fleeing the Armenian genocide has had a profound impact on everything he's ever done. The team behind the Dash Arts podcast is me, Josephine Burton, Christina Catalina and Natalie Beach. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast or by going to our podcast section on our website, dasharts.org.uk. If you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and do leave us a message and a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. I'm Josephine Burton, back soon with more conversations at the Dash Arts podcast. Thank you for listening. Ветров и красивый строков